And Lord, this morning it's a different kind of a morning, different service together because of sickness and people who are or are not here. And we just acknowledge that and acknowledge too that what's important to you is to worship in spirit and truth. And whether we have the full band <clears throat> or no instruments at all, we know that you're after our hearts and we give those to you this morning, both as we look in your word and as we sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen. We're back in John 1. If you care to turn there, that's where we'll be this morning. I know there's a few high school seniors here. And, you know, one of the things you do your high school senior year is you get senior pictures. And I've seen some senior pictures already. And you know how sometimes you look through that group of sittings, those portraits, And you'll look through some and you'll say one looks just like her and one there's a frown or the smile's not quite right or whatever. But you look at one picture and it so captures the essence or the character of that person that as soon as you see it, you say, that's it. That expresses Jessica Langhofer's character or whoever. And it wouldn't, not just a senior picture, but anytime you see a portrait of someone, if it captures them in the way that you know them. As soon as you see it, you acknowledge that. You recognize that's them. That's her. That's him. Or have you ever taken, maybe lately, maybe last night, have you ever taken a walk in the fall when the temperatures are cool and the colored leaves are still on the tree and some are on the ground and you're taking a walk in this perfect time of season and year and you say, this is fall. This is it. This is the essence of the fall season or the fall weather. Or you're blowing your nose and sneezing, John, and you know it's fall. And the hard frosts have not yet come. But there's something about the walk or the time or your health that tells you this is it. And whether it's the portrait, the picture, or whether it's that fall walk, the season, the leaves, etc., it's that quality that you see something or perceive something that captures the essence of that person or that season or whatever so that when you're there or when you see it, you say, that's it. In the passage we're in this morning in John 1, verses 14 through 18, John gives us the essence of God and his character. And if God's like a diamond in that he has many facets This is certainly one of the key, one of the most important facets of God's character that John displays for us this morning in verses 14 through 18. This is the end of what's called the prologue to this gospel, the word before the rest of the book. This is the end of the introduction. And it's interesting what John has to say at the end of the introduction of his book about God and his character. This will come up here in a little bit as we look at the verses specifically. But John uses, I don't know if you guys like this, I love the intricacies of the passages. And John uses two literary devices. He uses repetition and he uses chiasm or chiastic structure in these short verses so that there's no doubt about what he's trying to tell us, which we'll look at here in just a minute. But let's read John 1, 14 through 18, and then we'll work back through the passage. And the word... We know that's Jesus, although I'll mention here, it's not until verse 17 that John actually associates directly the word, the logos that he's been talking about with Jesus specifically, but we know that's his intent. So, And the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, that is the Baptist, bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Back at verse 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You remember when we did the introduction, I think it was week one, verse one, we talked about John is addressing both Greeks and Jews or Gentiles and Jews. And when John says of Jesus, the word became flesh, the Greek is sarx. And this was kind of as blunt as he could be that Jesus didn't just look like a man. He wasn't some apparition on earth. He wasn't a temporary appearance of God on earth. Sarks, he was flesh and blood just like you and me. You remember one of the Greek philosophies said that matter was inherently evil or deficient. And John is as blunt as he could be. The word became a flesh and blood creature like you and I. If there's any temptation, I think there's little temptation in our culture to think this, that there's something inherently wrong with the physical body. There's not. Remember in the Garden of Eden, everything God created, he said it's good. Flesh and blood bodies created were good. Paul says to Timothy, I can't remember if it's first or second Timothy, everything God created is good. And we pray about it, food or whatever, it doesn't matter. Jesus came down and he wasn't an apparition, it wasn't a temporary deal. He took on a sarx, a flesh and blood body like anyone else. Sin apart, Hebrew says he's been tempted in every way like we are, with one exception, sin apart. So he became a human being in the full sense with a flesh and blood body, just like you and I. It says he dwelt among us, depending on the version, your Bible version, it might say he tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. And if John saying the word became sarx was for the Greeks, he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. This is for the Jews. Because as soon as they hear this, Probably, John means them to think of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Exodus 33 is the passage that this is most closely associated with. And in that passage, if you remember, God is ticked with Israel and Moses is ticked with Israel. But God's not going to destroy them. He's going to go with them. But one of the fallouts of the break in relationship, so to speak, is that Moses takes his own tent and he takes it outside the camp of Israel, and he pitches his tent away from Israel where they can see it. When he does, his tabernacle set outside there, the Jews see God's glory in this cloud coming down onto Moses' tent, his tabernacle. We can read this passage in John, Jesus tented with us, and we saw his glory. The tent is a tabernacle, it's just a dwelling. 
He tabernacled with us and we saw his glory. It's the same thought and it's the same words. If you read the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint or the Septuagint, that's the same thing. So here John is saying, Jesus, just like God showing his glory on a tent with Israel in the Old Testament, Jesus is, in a sense, God's tent revealing God's glory now in his earthly body as he dwelled among us. God tabernacled with Israel in the wilderness at the tent. His glory came down. And John is saying to the Jews here, Jesus is God's glory in a tabernacle in a human form here on the earth. And we've said this before, but it bears repeating. The people who would try and tell you that Jesus does not make a claim to deity simply have no leg to stand on, and not just from this passage, but from any New Testament passage. It is clear the claim is to deity. John says that the glory that they beheld in Jesus, in his body, was glory of the only begotten of the Father. And only begotten here, I don't know if you guys like the Greek, but this makes it clearer for me. Only begotten is monogenius or monogenus. One or only beginning. Genus is, we get the word genesis. It's the beginning. Jesus is the only one whose beginning came directly from the Father. You remember when the angel appears to Mary and she says, how shall this thing be? I have never known a man. How can I bear a son? I am a virgin. Well, it's because the origin of your son isn't human. It's divine. The Holy Spirit will come on you. Jesus has no human or earthly father. He is the only person who's walked the earth whose genesis or beginning came directly from God the Father. Now, in a subset way, we are children of God, and we looked at before, a person's rebirth is brought about by God the Holy Spirit. That's a little different, though, than this. Jesus is uniquely in his body on the earth. He is the only one whose beginning comes directly from God the Father's hand. Verse 14 says at the end, only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When John wants to tell you what the glory of Jesus and therefore God the Father looked like, he tells you two things. He says it was grace and truth. The glory of the Father displayed in Christ is grace and truth. The Greek for grace here is charis. This, is a, this word gets lots of use. When you read in 1 Corinthians 12 about the gifts of the Spirit, it's charismatic, it's grace gifts. At its root, charis means joy. So you can read about joy as charis. Typically, most of its use has come to mean simply a favor or unmerited favor typically used of God towards man. Charis, grace. Um, love is often uh, translated from the same Greek word, charis. charis. If you think about the New Testament epistles, almost every one of them begins, begins with the phrase, grace to you, charis to you, God's favor to you, and peace. Almost all the same thing. If you think about your salvation, same word is used, 
thinking of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, your salvation is from God's charis. It's from his grace. It's favor. It's not something you and I work for. His grace, his disposition towards us of joy or favor is his grace. It's his charis towards us. Some people have an image of God that God is the angry God of the mountains in the Old Testament, full of judgment, harsh, hard, and that he's a new God displayed in Jesus in the New Testament. And this, this simply won't wash. There's two phrases, just like grace in the New Testament, there's two phrases in the Old Testament that describe God, that God uses to describe his own character. One is chen or hen with a ch in front of it, and the other is... Uh, gosh, I forgot, what is it? Uh, Hesed with a ha in front of it. So you've got, we'll say, Chen and Kesed in the Old Testament are translated grace and loving kindness or faithful love. And in the Old Testament, God describes himself as a God of favor and loving kindness. So when you read in Genesis 6, Noah found grace... It's chen, favor, in the eyes of the Lord. It's used 49 other times in the Old Testament to describe God's disposition towards someone else. It's favor. It's the same thing as grace in the New Testament. Or when you read, in fact, out of Exodus 34, when God describes himself to Moses, listen to this out of verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed by, he's displaying himself to Moses, and he says, The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, kesed, and truth, who keeps loving kindness, kesed, for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Or Psalm 36, 5 says, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens, Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Psalm 136, 26 verses long. Every verse says the same thing. His loving kindness is everlasting. You don't have to go to the New Testament to find out that God is gracious. He describes himself this way in the Old Testament. And in the Greek version, the Jewish Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, these same words, charis, are used to describe and interpret these verses. God was in the Old Testament and describes himself in the New as gracious, favorable towards us. That's his disposition towards us, old and new. So that in the Old Testament, when God describes his own characterization of himself, it's favor and grace, it's loving kindness and grace. And when God's glory, John says, is displayed through Jesus, that glory is gracious. It's grace. It's favor. Some people will tell you, those who haven't come to Christ, sometimes you'll talk to them about the Lord, and they will tell you that God is a harsh and a vindictive and perhaps an unfair being. And it's certainly true that God is holy, and that means he's absolutely separate from anything deficient or anything sinful. He is absolutely holy, and he's extremely good at judgment. 
And he does describe himself throughout the Old Testament as holy, but that's, that's a different facet, and that's a little, a little uh, removed from what we're talking about this morning. But if a person does not know that God is gracious, that he's faithful, that he's kind, they do not know the God that the Bible describes in either the Old or the New Testament. And you can correct them if you like. You can offer those verses that talk about God and his description of himself. In fact, it's interesting. I may be getting ahead of myself. I probably am. But even in that, in Exodus 34, Moses gives the law to Israel. And the law is not primarily gracious. It says, if you obey these rules, you will be blessed. If you disobey these rules, you will be blessed cursed. So it's all dependent on what you do. It's what you earn. That is the law. But it's fascinating that even in that very passage in Exodus 33 and 34, the reason God says that he'll stay with Moses and therefore continue to bless Israel is because of his grace. He says, Moses, you have my favor and therefore I will remain. So Old or New Testament, God's glory, and here John says specifically revealed in Jesus, is grace. He's describing himself for us, and he is gracious. The other aspect of his character that he mentions here in verse 14 is truth. And this is kind of interesting. The Greek for truth is aletheia. And this is two words. It's got A in front of it, so that means not or without, lethia. And lethia is escaping notice. So this means not to escape notice. So truth is, in this sense, it's describing a positive by excluding a negative. So truth is something not escaping notice. It's a thing as it really is. Truth is life as it really is. Or in another word, a synonym, truth is reality. Truth is reality. And John says that when Jesus came to the earth, part of the display of God's glory in him was truth. So that when you read the words of Jesus, he is giving you truth, aletheia, reality. So when he describes the Father, he's describing the Father as he really is. Or when he describes who he is, God the Son on earth, he's describing things as they are really are. It's reality. Some people will tell you that to be a Christian, you have to be soft-headed or naive because you don't understand the way things really are. And nothing is or should be further from the truth. A Christian should be the most rational person on earth, the most hard-headed, meaning seeing things as they really are, Because the person you follow as a Christian is in himself and in his words, truth. He is the expression of reality and his words express reality, the way things really are. Christians should be those who know the truth more than anyone else. I'll read you two verses out of Acts 26. Paul was one outstanding intellectual. Before his conversion, he was an outstanding intellectual. He had the best training the world had to offer, especially in Judaism, in his day. He had the best teachers. He had the best best academic background. He was a Ph.D. in his day, absolutely. 
Yet before his conversion, he rejected Jesus and all his claims based on truth or reality. Once he's converted, God knocks him down and reveals. Jesus reveals himself to him on the road to Damascus, and he becomes converted. Now his intellectual and academic background are totally refocused, and he can see the Old Testament and Jesus' display in it. When he's defending himself to Festus in Acts 26, he's talking about Jesus and judgment and resurrection and life to come. And Festus says, let me read verse 24, While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Paul, you've lost touch with reality. What you're saying isn't true. Your great learning is driving you mad. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of of sober truth. Aletheia, what I say is, Reality. When you share the gospel with others and they critique it or its object, Jesus, for one reason or another, almost never is the complaint reality or that Jesus isn't who he really said he was or or whatever. It's simply that I don't like the message and so I'm rejecting the rest of it. In other words, the rejection of the gospel at its base is a departure from reality or it's an outright rejection of the desire to come under God's rule. I don't know if that makes sense, but if someone says to me, I I share the gospel with them, and they say, I don't buy Genesis 1, or I don't believe Jesus is who he really said he was, or things along that line, you know what? At some point I say the issue is not information. The issue is the will. This isn't what they want. And so they leave reality behind by simply saying, I don't recognize that. They turn their face the other way and they say, I'm going to believe something else. That's fine. But it's not reality. And they're not operating in truth. The person who shakes their fist at God and says, I will not come under submission to you, that's reality. See, that, that's the difference. Someone may say, I recognize Jesus' claims. I know he is who he said he was, but I don't want him. That's honest. That's true. That's reality. They're not going to like what they get, but that's reality. So Christians should be those most committed and most informed by truth and reality. We should see things as they are, more than anyone else around us. Because Jesus, the display of God's glory in Christ, is truth. It's truth. Grace and truth was the reflection of God's glory in Christ. At verse 15, John the Apostle tells us again about John the Baptist when he says, John bore witness of him. He cried out saying, this is the one I talked about. He's of a higher rank because he existed before me. You know if you read Luke's gospel that John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. So John cannot be talking about physical age. Because Jesus physically is six months the junior to John the Baptist. They are cousins, if you remember. And Jesus is six months younger. When John says he existed before me, he's not talking about his conception or his birth. He's talking about pre-existence again. And that cannot be said of you or I. You and I did not have a beginning before our conception. We did not exist. 
Jesus, John the Baptist said, existed before I did. Not physically, but spiritually. Look at verse 16. This is the middle of John's chiasm. Uh, chiasm is a literary structure where verses point to a center. And if you think of an X, this is the thing. You know how the letter X points to itself. It has a, it has a point, a meeting in the middle. And chiastic structure simply means that verses build towards a middle and then they digress from it away. And verse 16 is the middle of John's chiasm. And I won't go into the rest of that, but I just want to say this is the middle verse thematically and structurally in the verse. And this is what it says, Of his fullness, the words, Jesus, we have all received and grace upon grace. So when John says, what did the fullness of Jesus look like? He says, it's grace piled up on top of grace. Verse 14 says, the word was full of grace and truth. Verse 16 says, his fullness was grace upon grace. And verse 17 says, grace and truth were realized in Jesus. The portrait The essence of God displayed in Christ is grace and truth, and it's grace on top of grace. That's the portrait of Christ. That's the image of God's glory in Christ. Verse 17 says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You remember to the Jewish audience or to the folks Jesus spoke to, If they had a boast or a claim to fame, it was to Moses and the law. In fact, later in John's gospel, they'll say, we are followers of Moses. We follow the law. John says the law was given through Moses. And the law certainly had a glory. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face was glowing from the glory of God. But even in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the glory of the new covenant brought about by Jesus was of such a magnitude that it absolutely occluded the glory of the old covenant. It would be like the glory of the moon is great and you love it at night to see the full moon shining. But when the sun rises, you can't see the moon anymore because the brightness of the sun is of such greater intensity, it totally removes the glory of the former. And that's the sense between Jesus, John is saying here, and Moses. Moses brought the law, but the law didn't bring life. And the law blessed only if you kept it. And guess what? No one kept it. In fact, if you remember from the story in Exodus, the law is given on Sinai and the law is broken before Moses gets down with it to the bottom of the hill. Israel never, ever kept the law. And the law never gave anyone grace or life. So John says, the law came from Moses. And the law was good. It pointed out sin. It was supposed to lead them to Christ. Nothing inherently bad with it. It's just that to sinners, the law, that is a set of principles that say do this and live, could never save people who couldn't keep it and wouldn't keep it. The law could not give life. So John says to the Jewish audience, what you have came from Moses, it's the law. He doesn't go into it, but the law came from Moses. But in contrast to that, you didn't get the law 
from Jesus. When Jesus came, when Jesus comes, you get grace and truth. The law said, do these things and you'll be blessed. Grace says, I'll bless you because I want to. I am sovereignly telling you that my disposition towards you is grace or favor or kindness or love, not because you've deserved it or earned it, but because I've chosen to give it. Look at the last verse of this passage, verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. You remember before when we talked about Jesus and his preexistence, we said, we mentioned this verse because if you see God in the Old Testament, it is not God the Father. When God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, it was not the Father, it was Jesus. Or when the captain of God's host reveals himself to Joshua, it's not the Father, it's Jesus. It's Jesus at the burning bush. It's Jesus, the flame of fire, making a covenant with Abraham. No man, John says, has ever seen God the Father. The only begotten, though, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, or he has revealed him, or he has shown the way to that Father, the one that no one else has seen. You remember later, the night of the Last Supper, Jesus is talking to his friends here. They've been with him for three, three and a half years. And John 14, you know, he says, hey, you know where I'm going? And they say, man, we really don't. Where are you going? And he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And Philip says to him, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip says, show us the Father, Lord, and it's enough. And Jesus says, no, no. If you've seen me, to see me is to see the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In fact, in the same passage, he says, I and the Father are one. To see Jesus is to see the Father. We've not physically seen him. We've not physically laid our eyes on him. But John says here that Jesus is the expression of the Father. Jesus tells his happy followers that to see him, to know him, is to see and know the Father. In Hebrews 1, it says Jesus is the image of God. He is the, one of the old words is the effulsion of his glory that if a, if you saw the candle, you could see a flame of the candle and the light of the candle. And if you said, where does the light end and the flame begin? That's kind of like Jesus and the Father. Jesus is the light of the candle. To see the light is to see the Father or to see the light is to see the flame, so to speak. It's hard to divide one from the other, and that's the thought here. The character of the Father and the Son, the portrait, if you will, the essence of the Father and the Son, John says, displayed in Jesus is grace and truth. It's grace on top of grace. Now, my image of this in my mind, this is not to be irreverent, Uh, If you like banana splits, I do. You know what you take is you take delicious ice cream and then you put more delicious ice cream on top of it. Or you take ice cream and then you put chocolate. And if you like nuts, you put nuts. And if you like whipped cream, you put whipped cream. But you take one delicious thing and you pile it on top of another delicious thing. 
so that what you've got is this bowl full of delicious stuff. (laughs) And you're ready to dig in. And John says that Jesus and the Father, the essence, if you look at a portrait and you say, that's God, when John paints his portrait of the Father and the Son, he says, in Mike's version, it's like that banana split. It's one good thing on top of another. It's grace with truth, or it's grace on top of grace. And you remember, we've not, grace has lots of definitions. If you look this up in Webster's, there might be a dozen. And if you look up charis, the Greek term, you'll find many definitions. But when we think about this, remember that grace is God's favor to you apart from anything you do. You do not earn grace. You can't do anything to get it. It can only be given. And how fitting that when Jesus displays the character of the Father in his person, grace and truth, his his being here is the expression of God's grace. His incarnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection are the ultimate expression of God's grace to us. Because in his coming to earth, it's the purchase of our salvation. It's the covering for, from, for our sins. All of those things, none of which we could do for ourselves. If God wasn't gracious, we could never be saved. One command to Adam and Eve in the garden. The whole world's open to you. Just don't do one thing or you'll die. And they do the one thing and die. The law comes along later and says, now you must keep all these laws to live. And we never kept the law. Israel, if we were there, we'd have done the same thing. We never kept the law to live. If we were going to be saved, God had to do it through grace, through unmerited favor. And a Christian's spiritual rebirth, a Christian's spiritual life begins through grace, and it continues through grace, and it ends through grace. Our whole life begins, lives, and dies in God's grace. If we know Him at all, it's only because of His grace. So as we close, as we get ready to close and pray, take a minute to just reflect on your life and how God has blessed you or the ways, the manners in which His grace has been poured out to you. For all of us, if we know Christ, if we're saved, it begins at salvation. In fact, it actually begins before that. But personally, in a way that we can appreciate it, it at least begins at our salvation. And all the great ways and all the good things that you experience in life come because God is gracious to us. And the truth element of His being, too, because He's true, He simply couldn't tell us that we're okay with him when we're not. He couldn't simply overlook our sins. He knows the ultimate reality is there's no way he could bring us into heaven. But his grace, as it were, takes care of the truth, the real assessment of our fallen nature, and his grace takes care of our real problem and our real sin. Let's just take a minute right now to simply reflect on the ways God's grace has been 
made real in your life, whether that's salvation or whether that's your family or your health or anything else, just take a minute to think about those things and to thank God for them. Lord, it occurs to me that had Jesus, your son, come to earth and revealed your essential character or nature, grace, and truth, it would have done us no good if he hadn't died for our sins and that his incarnation was the requirement of his crucifixion and his resurrection so that we could be saved. Lord, the fact of his presence on the earth that God took on sarks or flesh and blood was so that we could be redeemed. That was your grace in action so that the true standing of our sinful and fallen nature before you could be taken care of. Lord, in a million and one ways we experience your grace every day and that your disposition towards us is grace piled up on top of grace. Lord, might the fact of your favorable disposition to us, the fact that your grace is poured out on us, that it's your firm determination to bless us, might that motivate us to say thank you each day in our life, in the way we live, in the way we speak, in the way we serve. Lord, we don't want to take that as a license to simply do as we please, but we want to give back to you a life of thanksgiving for your grace and truth, for your grace piled up on top of grace and all given to us. Lord, we thank you that your essential character, besides being holy, besides being just, which you are, Lord, we thank you especially for those elements of your character that John reveals in your Son, grace and truth, grace on top of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.